Some say he was an outlaw. He roamed across the land as a truth teller. Nobody really knew where he came from or what he'd done except to speak up. But they knew it must have been something bad because he was constantly on the run. And he, he led this, uh, er, er, he was the erstwhile leader of a, a group of believers, a remnant of believers, of God believers, and, and of some, <clears throat> some other, what is known as the Nabu, the, the, the truth tellers of the time. And he, he was a teacher to them, but he wasn't always with them. In fact, he, sometimes he was completely alone. Sometimes he would take an aide with him, but that was about it. And the fact is, is that he felt alone. Truth be told, he was alone. I mean, by, by international standards, everybody knew who he was. I mean, even in other countries besides Israel. But he was alone in that he was the only one, it seemed, who was able to speak to the times and to speak truth to power. Because he lived in these incredibly dystopian times when the stories that we've heard about, about times when the social imagination of the people, of the, of the society, are, are just sort of uh, overwhelmed with the sense that there's a dark time and that, that the, the social order and the cultural moment is just sort of coming apart and that pretty soon there won't be any justice at all. And it seemed in those days that nobody could tell really what was true except for when he spoke up. They couldn't tell between the truth from a big pack of lies that they were being fed. And so it was into that moment that this religious free speecher, if you will, came into the public consciousness. He, he was... He, of course, was, was one of those who was a little odd. I mean, he, he had a real twist to him. He was incredibly lacking in political correctness, for one thing. And, and he, what, what was worse is what he said and what he prof, prof, prophesied would be true was true. It came true. It always came true. And a lot of it wasn't very nice. And so he was an oddball, really. But he was one of the Nabu, and in his case, his name even bore out of who he was a prophet for. It was Elijah, God, Yah, the God who is I am. You see, it's this dystopian, in this dystopian world, he came and said, the Lord God has told me that he, that is God, has had enough that he's going to make a move, that he's had enough of sin and corruption and violence and hate, and that it, for all the effort to keep him quiet and to keep him in the background, it's not going to happen anymore. And the direct target of his darts was the head of state. And in this particular case, this particular head of state was a particularly incompetently evil piece of work named Ahab. <laughs> and Ahab, you know, no one knows if he saw this in himself, but it was obvious to ever, everybody else that he had this penchant, this, this inner kind of deeply self-focused, sniveling, whiny kind of epic narcissism that, that caused him not to be able to get his eyes off himself and his own power. And, and that just... You know, it doesn't go very well in a country that's already in decline. 
And so what we find out from this story of Elijah is that everything Ahab tried seemed like a good idea at the time, but it played out the way that all stories of someone who is completely focused on themselves, on the autonomous self. It happens to all lives and all people who are completely focused on the autonomous self. Ultimately, what happens in those societies, in those people, in those narcissistic moments, is God winds up saying, okay, fine, have it your way have it your way, you get to have what you want, and they get to be alone and have it their way. That's Elijah. Welcome today to Eastridge. So glad that you're here. So glad that you've tuned in. Uh, But what we would call Elijah if he was around in our day, and some people have sort of reflected his kind of way, we would call him an extremist. And the thing is, is he's not a violent extremist by any means or any shape or form. He, was, he had a devotion to the Lord God of Israel. And that being the case, he was an extremist in terms of God's grace and telling the truth. He was extremist in grace and in truth, as the New Testament winds up calling it. Elijah, ironically, was able to tell the truth about the false god Baal, for example. And in telling the truth, he began the process of neutering, if you will, the god Baal, the false god Baal, which is ironic because uh, Baal was supposed to be the god of fertility and storms. And by simply speaking the truth that God gave him, he was able to do that. And that put him in this extremist category because there was nobody else willing or having the courage to do it, to do what God had told him to say to speak the truth of God. You see, ever since Elijah, we've had sort of Elijah-esque leaders and Elijah-esque people that have shown up on the, the, the scene of, of history and in the history of our country. And what, what's interesting about that is that's actually the, what the good news of Elijah's story is. That's the big idea, that God still has a remnant. God has not left the country. God has not gone anywhere. He's still here. That's the promise. That's, that's the good news of it, if you will. You see, from a, from a Christian worldview, we've had prophets like that, small p, that God has raised up, faithful followers of his that he has used up for vast, great societal change. May he do that again, please. Let's pray to that end. We're going to celebrate, as, as Ben mentioned uh, this morning already, uh, the life of one such Jesus follower tomorrow, this weekend, really. Martin Luther King Jr. And you know, of course, that he was one who spoke up and stood up when nobody else was speaking up and standing up against the horrible uh, uh, injustice and and deep, dark evil and sin of racism. And yet he insisted that it was going to be done in a nonviolent way. So he too is in that category of Elijah. He was not the violent kind of extremist, but he was an extremist. He was an extremist in love. And we know this because uh, Dr. King was uh, in in jail several times for protests. uh, They just kept locking him up, and he kept getting out and kept marching and so forth. He made the point, and ultimately we know he was successful. But the reality is is that during those days, in those dark days, you didn't know if it was going to work out or not. And and he was in uh, the Birmingham jail this time. And he wrote a letter to the pastors of Birmingham uh, and, and to uh, 
the pastors of the cities around and across North America, and it actually became an epic letter, an epic um, uh, writing that, that we can understand what he was about and what he was up to. And he wrote it not just to his African-American uh, uh, brothers in, in the pastor, but all the white pastors even, the ones that were, knew that racism was wrong but didn't really know what to do and didn't know if they should speak up. And he, he tried to muster their courage and said some amazing things. And what's interesting is there's one section of it, I want to read it to you. He says, he talks about the... the um, reality of how everything that was going on then in the culture at that moment fits right into the vein of, of biblical history, of God's history, of God setting things right and making things the way they should be and making everything new, as he says at the end of Revelation. And, and let, me, let me just read it for you because it fits so well into Elijah's story and I think it fits so well into our story right now. Listen to this. It says, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do not do good to those who hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos, the Old Testament prophet, was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like the ever-flowing stream. Was Paul not an extremist for Christian gospel, the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then King shows us exactly how this plays out and translates out even in the history of the world, like Christian history. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Was John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, the greatest spiritual uh, sort of classic of the last 500 years? And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, thus the nation cannot survive half slave, half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremist for hate or for love? That's well said, and not only is it well said, but I think it is exactly for our time, and it is exactly what Elijah came to be and what Elijah came to say. But what's interesting for us in our moment at this time is that Elijah wasn't just for that time. I mean, yes, I know he's in our Bibles, uh, you know, but we believe uh, uh, around here, we're one of those kinds of churches that believes that all of this has something to say to us. And the reason that all of that has something to say to us is that the Spirit of God inspired it to be written down. That's what we believe. We, we believe that the Spirit of God is in uh, the stories that, that is here and, and that sort of thing. So that we believe that. But I, I'm talking about something even bigger. We're, we're talking about the ongoing revelation of God. The, the revelation of God, and, of, of, God of, of his story and how history and how our lives and how the world plays out. What's interesting about that with regard to Elijah is ever since Elijah's time, he keeps showing up in every age where God needs to make a move, where God says, hey, I'm going to make a move where I show you for God so loves the world. Every single time in the history of biblical history and God's history, including right now in this history, and in the future even, what the Bible talks about the future will be like, Elijah shows up. Let me quickly just kind of show you, as quickly as I can, I'm, I'm going to ask you to stick with me. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to these passages. I'm not going to have most of them on the screen. But, but listen to this. We see Elijah in the, in the Older Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, what the... What the um, 
uh, Hebrews, the Jewish people would call their Bible, the, the order of the Jewish Bible is called the Tanakh. The last book of the Tanakh is Second Chronicles. And Elijah shows up there in the context of the Messiah who will be coming. And that's exactly the same as true with our Bible, because our Bible, the Christian Bible, ends with Malachi. And in chapter 4 of the book of Malachi, verses 5 and 6, it says, there will be a Messiah coming. Yeah, I'm going to go dark for a while, God says. And it winds up, he goes dark for 400 years. But I will send another one, and there will be someone who comes before the Messiah who will be in the shoes of Elijah. He will be like Elijah, making straight paths for the way of the Lord, that kind of Elijah. Isn't that interesting? And then we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus' stories, we get to the Gospels, and right up front in Luke's Gospel, for example, in chapter 1, there's this angel that comes to this old man and says, hey, by the way, you and your old wife, you're going to have a baby. <laughs> yeah, right, okay, I'm going to make sure that you don't talk for the nine months while she's pregnant because you didn't believe me. But in the process of explaining to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, why this is happening, here's what the angel says. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient of the, to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready the a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus picks up on this too in his teaching in, in, place, in a couple of places, but the, in Matthew's rendering of it, in Matthew chapter 11, he says this. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence. Isn't that interesting? And the violent people have been raiding it, the kingdom of God. For the, all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. What's he saying? He's saying, if you want to understand me, you need to kind of know what's going on with Elijah. Because what sets up the Elijah story sets up everything else that's going to transpire at a certain level. Not at a complete level, but there's an epic nature to Elijah's story. Or think about the story that shows up in all the Gospels about this mountain, this place that, that um, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and says, come on, I want to show you something. And they go up this mountain. And as they're up there, Jesus kind of gets this translucent glow about him or something. And all of a sudden, two other people that look exactly like that, that, that sort of translucent glow show up and they're talking to Jesus. And somehow, in way, shape, or form, Peter, James, and John, they know that it's Elijah and Moses. And remember, when we went through Mark, Peter blurts out, hey, hey, let's build some tents. Let's build some tents for you guys. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for uh, 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 Elijah. And and and." You know, that Jesus doesn't even address that because what, what Peter didn't fully understand and, and the reason that statement he didn't understand is in the Bible is because that would be like setting up a tabernacle, like a place to worship. And you don't worship these people. What were they doing there? We don't really told, but, but most people think that it was because they were, just, they were there to meet with Jesus to talk about how God's plan to love the world and bring his grace and salvation in the world was going to play out then and throughout time. At least that's what the Hebrews believed. I mean, when, when, when Herod heard that Jesus was walking around doing miracles, he thought that Elijah had come back to life. When Jesus said, uh, you know, into your hands I commit my spirit, Lord, he died. And people, people thought that when he cried out, you know, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? They thought he was calling out for Elijah, it says in the Gospels. Because Elijah was deep into their psyche. Then when they, they knew when, they, when Elijah showed up, something was about to foot with what God was going to do. And what God was going to make his move when Elijah showed up. 
The one who sort of brings this all together is the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 11, when he's describing the reality of God, all of God's uh, you know, history and, and the story of God and, and theology and all of that, in verse 2 of chapter 11 of the book of Romans, Paul says this. He said, God did not reject his people whom he foresaw. Don't you know that the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? The Lord, he, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. We'll, we'll see that when we get to chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's the good news. God hasn't gone anywhere, and you're not alone. There are others. There's always a remnant when God, even in the darkest moment, when God can use that remnant to make his move. So too in the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace for our time. And if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. (laughs) It's not up to us. The world does not revolve on our shoulders. It's not up to Christians to change the world. It's up to us to be faithful and to speak up and have the courage to be Christian when we need to be. That's what we're going to learn from Elijah, specifically today, but all the way through the story. See, that's Elijah's, the big idea of his life. And as we saw last week, prayer enters into this because Elijah is raised up by James in chapter 5 of the book of James. Remember, we, we, we wound up here in James. The prayers of a righteous person. What does that mean? Does that mean like super Christian? No, it means a person who's just like us because that's what James says. Elijah was just like us. He's a human being. But people who faithfully follow God, their prayers accomplish a whole lot because God fills them with his presence and what he wants to do and he's just looking for people to have the courage to pray those kinds of prayers all the way through to the ends of time have you seen just before the maps there's this book called Revelation and in Revelation have you seen read that book lately there's a lot in there that's already happening I believe and a lot of that's already going on but there's a lot of it about what's to come in the end of times and one of those things is there's going to be two prophets that show up and they're going to be killed and they're going to lay in the streets for a few days, and then they're going to rise. But they're going to bring, bring the message that God is real, and he is here, and he is going to judge evil and sin, and this is coming to an end. And those prophets, we're not told who they are, but almost everybody who's ever studied the Bible, including the early church fathers, thinks it was Moses and Elijah, because that's who Jesus saw up in the Mount of Transfiguration. Another option that some of the church fathers and some of the theologian sense of thought, it's Elijah and Enoch, because Elijah and Enoch are the two people that didn't die, they just got translated to heaven, Elijah in a fiery chariot, we'll talk about that, that's a cool story. But the reality is, is that, you know, they thought, well, they haven't died, so they're coming back, so we don't know, but the point I'm trying to make is Elijah is in both lists, he's pretty much in all of the lists of who, who those two people are at the end of time, in the end of days. So, Those of us who believe in the trustworthiness of every part of the Bible, we realize that Elijah is important for us to understand in every age, but especially in an age that's struggling with moral decline and struggling with the the need for some hope that there still is a God who can reverse this process that we're seeing in our world. And I think that's us. I think that's our time. 
So let me just start with, ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16, and I'm going to start with sort of a, a, a series of verses that seem like just a bunch of historical background, but that's not. It's Bible study, I promise. I'm going to try to explain it as we go along, but uh, I'm going to read this, this to you, and, and uh, it, it clarifies where the story is going. Verse 29 of 1 Kings chapter 16. This is one of those situations where the chapter's divisions probably should have been moved up a bit. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. So here's what we got just first of all. Israel's the northern kingdom. Remember, Israel had split after Solomon. The northern kingdom, 10 tribes went to there, and the southern kingdom, two tribes went to there. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom had the name Judah. And they were at civil war for a while. But Ahab's the king now of the northern kingdom. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria, that was his capital, for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, watch this, more than all who were before him. Eugene Peterson says that uh, the, the stories of the book of King are a resent, relentless epic, uh, exposition of failure, a relentless nosedive, if you will, and Ahab's the bottom of the bucket. (laughs) He's the worst of the worst. Verse 31, and as though it had been trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, another evil king, the first one to sacrifice in the high places uh, to other gods, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the Sidonians out on the seacoast by the Mediterranean, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. So he erected an altar for Baal at the house of Baal, which he built a temple to Baal in Samaria, his capital. Verse 33, Ahab also made an Asherah, which is a pole, a, a worship thing. So Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then this verse that is weird, well, I'm just going to read it, but we'll pick it up later. But it's just odd to sort of stick this in here, it seems. Verse 34, in his days, Heel, a Bethlehemite, rebuilt Jericho, and he laid its foundations with the loss of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Zagub. Don't name your kid Zagub. In the accordance with the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. But you see, what you see here is is this, this decline that Peterson talks about, this utter failure. God continues to work out his sovereign purposes in spite of all that. That nothing has gotten out of his control. Often it's silently and it's hidden from us who are looking at the news and reading the social media feeds. But God's sovereignty never gets canceled out. There may be a deeply flawed leaders like this king. And, and, and that means that you can trust in the sovereignty of God in spite of all that. With your life, with your church, with your culture. Because it's saying that that's really what is important. That's the big idea of Elijah's life and how it plays out through the whole scripture. And so we, we ought not to skip by these verses too quickly without looking at 
sort of how a culture declines, how a society declines morally, and, and how it all happens. And so I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can because I don't want to make this the main thing. I want to get to God's sovereignty and what God's about and how God gives us courage to live in this cultural moment. But let's just stop for a minute to look at these steps of decline, if you will in the life of Israel and the people there. The first one is rejection of God. Now, you could argue that it had been happening before and that Ahab was just affirming the Baal worship that had been going on before, but he took it to a whole new level. He took it to a whole new region. You see, there, there were commercial ties because he'd chosen to worship with Baal because all the surrounding regions, all the way up into the Syrian Persian regions, which is, were not um, called that at that time, and all the way down to Egypt and all this, everybody had their Baal. It's just you took your, your, your own little adjective, you took your own little word and put it with that bail. You kind of chose your bail. And so when you did that, you had synergy with these other, um, other cultures. And, and what, that's what frustrated God the most possible because he says, I want you, my people, to be different than everybody else. I want me to be your God. I want that to be clear to everybody and then, then to watch the amazing things I do through you. And that's the point of, of how I'm going to bless you so that I can change the world through you that way. But when, when they're just like everybody else, why should they care? I mean, why should, why should God do any of that? And yet he continues by his grace to work behind the scenes. What's interesting is this mention of Jezebel. Did you notice her dad's name? Ethbaal. That was their version, the Sidonians' version out in the seacoast, in Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians, if you will. That's where she came from. Apparently, she had daddy issues when she came over to marry Ahab and said, I'm starting a new religion. So she set up this Baal thing and encouraged him to do that. What's the first thing that happens in, in when you, we worship other gods, though? When we start tying our hope to other things, ideologies or things or people or ideas other than God, what happens then? Well, the next thing that happens is a culture of death. Because we see this in this day, archaeological evidence has shown what had been rumored for a long time, that the Canaanite religion of Baal worship, including during Ahab and Elijah's time, was filled with human sacrifice, specifically child sacrifice, and I'm not going to get into the detail of how they did that, but it was horrific. I remember when I first found that out, I was like, you're kidding, in Israel? Yeah, in Israel. But it ought not to shock us too much because we have a culture of death in our own world on both ends of the spectrum, unborn life and elderly life. It's going on in the world today. But then there's another step. People start to get flippant about sin. You see, there's always, always these temptations that are always around to follow other gods and to not make such a big deal about not following God, which is the ultimate sin. Not believing in the one true God, that is the ultimate sin. And, uh, you know, it's not that big a deal. You start to get flippant about it and you start to trust somebody because the fact of the matter is, is what's interesting is human beings never stop themselves long enough to realize that why is it that we continually have to tie our boat to somebody or something? Why is it that we continually have to rely on somebody? It's because... We were made that way. And it just might be that the one who made us that way was the one who says, I want to be your God. <laughs> but thirdly, what happens out of that when you start to get flippant about sin is you start trusting the world because you've got to trust somebody. What's interesting is this, again, this marriage to Jezebel. You need to, I need to kind of give you some historical perspective here. You see, both the king of Judah in the, in the south and in uh, Israel in the north, both of them had a location, location, location problem. 
They bordered right on the edge of the major highway, the King's Highway, that ran from Arabia and Egypt and Africa all the way up the uh, Jordan River Valley up to Syria, Persia. So it was a major trading route. And so that's why uh, the... Uh, the, the wars continually happened back and forth and back and forth in the Jordan Valley, in the Jezreel Valley, which is where Megiddo is, where Armageddon is, <laughs> and back and forth. For the, for the hundred years between just before Ahab and after Ahab by about 70 years or so, that's, that's, that was back and forth because all these kings from the north were trying to conquer that road and then the kings from the south, because if you had control of that road, you had control of the world from their perspective. So Ahab needs to do something, so what does he do? He marries Jezebel. I don't know if he really realizes the consequence of marrying an angry wife, but that's, that's what happened. Uh, he married her for political reasons because her dad was uh, the king of Sidon on the seacoast, uh, a seafaring people, the Phoenicians. We even, they're famous for it even today. They were one of the first navies in the world, so at least he would be able to get his trade and get his supplies from that if he had that connection. He wouldn't have to worry about the king's road anymore, even if he was surrounded by invading armies. But then it goes from trusting in the world to the silliest of idolatry. We believe in the silliest things. We put our hope in the silliest things when we think about it. I mean, we make fun of people for putting their hope in you know, statues and hand, things made with their hands, but even our idolatry, as subtle as it is, even more crazy, really. We're hoping and trusting in this person or that person. We're hoping and trusting in if I can just get this much money. We're hoping and trusting if I can just become famous on Twitter you know, Baal shows how silly he is by the name that they gave him in Israel. The name they put with Baal was Zebul. And Zebul was a weird name. It's actually a question. It's like, where is Baal the mighty? Like, nobody knows. Or another way to translate it would be, where is the prince of the Lord of the earth? Well, it ain't you, Baal. But what's particularly disconcerting about that is that the word for Zebul, for, for Baal, the, who, is the, who is the mighty, is very similar to another word, zibble. And zibble in the Hebrew language means dung. In other words, Baal's name would be, where's the dung? Where's the poo? <laughs> By the way, children who are listening to this, you still need to follow your parents' rules about whether or not you can say that word. But, you know, how silly. How silly to follow a God who is that weak. But that leads to Violence, and this is where we get to that that word that is, or that verse that seems stuck on at the end of verse sixteen, chapter sixteen. It, it talks about Jericho and a guy named Heel uh, building Jericho again. But here's what you got to understand: first of all, it affirms the culture of violence because. Uh, uh, what we've unearthed there is this sort of polytheistic. Uh, kind of a sacrificial system of human beings that happened at Jericho about this time because of this rebuilding. And second thing it is, it does violence to God's word because God says in, in Joshua 6, uh, verse 26, after uh, you know the Israelites are marched around Jer Jericho and the walls come crumbling down, it says, God says, never, no one will ever rebuild on this. And if you try rebuilding Jericho, you will, there will be death involved. But Hill apparently, and at Ahab's blessing, go ahead, goes ahead and does it. And he loses two of his kids, his, his sons that have been born to him, whether it be in the work or whether it be by sacrifice, we don't know. But it's just kind of flying in the face of God 
Doesn't matter. We're going to just do it. And so, again, it, it, just, it does violence to the Word of God, and pretty soon people are experiencing the violence themselves. What you see here is a, is a decline into a moral wilderness. And, and, and it's, it's a lot like the uncharted territory that we feel today. I don't think the decline is complete yet, don't get me wrong. But, but we feel this sort of decline in, in our culture and our society into a, in a, into a moral wilderness, if you will. And the thing about the word wilderness, I was thinking about this this week. When I use the word wilderness, sometimes I use it in a very positive way. Like, I can hardly wait to get back there kind of way. I can hardly wait to get back to backpacking in the Sisters or the Jefferson or the Mount Hood Wilderness area this summer because, ah, that's so good, especially when it doesn't rain. So good. But there's another way to use wilderness too, isn't it? It's, it's the I can hardly wait to get out of here kind of wilderness because there's bad things in there. And that's the kind of wilderness that God was trying to save Israel from and what he always tries to save his people and always tries to save people that don't even know him yet from when cultures are in that kind of decline. So that's why all of this seems to parallel. Elijah's moment seems to parallel with our moment, and not just our exact moment, but the, the last 50 years of our world. In fact, let me, I'm going to do something because of that. I'm going to read something uh, that I wouldn't normally read because I don't normally read directly out of the commentaries that I study during the week to put messages together. But there was something I read this week that is so apropos to our time, even though it's talking about Israel in Elijah's time. I just want you to see this. Watch this. This is from the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. It says, Israel's acceptance of Canaanite religion, that's the Baal worship, was far more insidious than cultic activity alone. In other words, what they did to practice this kind of Baal work, you know, the, the actual rubrics and the rituals they did, it's much more insidious than just those rituals, as horrible as those were. It represented an adoption of an entire worldview replete with the human-like God, small g, of the vice a vice and self-serving despot who turned upside down the cosmology, the way the world is supposed to work, of the Bible and the ethics, the morals of biblical law. Sound familiar? This is the shift in worldview that Elijah and Elisha confronted even as they ministered to the small but faithful remnant that did not bow the knee to Baal. That's the good news. There it is. It keeps coming in. The good news, there's... I'm not gone. I still have my people. They're still there. That's the translation. Translation, we are experiencing a massive shift in worldview. That is the way the people imagine their lives and the world to be. We've gone from a time when most people would say, yes, there is one God. Yes, the Bible is the good book, so forth and so on. Whether they believed it or believed in him or not, most people would say that. We've moved to a time when people say, no, nah, there's no God. And it's really about survival of the fittest. That's the horror of this time. And that's what makes the good news so good, so good in our time. The good news is, is there will always be a remnant. There will always be a Naboo. That was the universal word in, in all the countries around Israel and in Israel. In, in Hebrew, it was, it was phrased this way, the Nabi. That's what a prophet was. That was what a truth tether was. Sounds cool, doesn't it? Sounds like it's something from Star Wars. But it's not. It's Hebrew. Impress your friends. Nabu. Elijah was the greatest Nabu of his time, and in many ways the greatest, one of the greatest Nabi in all the scriptures. And I know that's a lot of background, but that's all a part of the Bible study and understanding what this means. Because as we look at this and we want to understand what is it that we need to have courage about? 
What is it that Elijah did and how did Elijah live that we can see? Yet, God, we are asking you to do something through us. Because here, here's the thing, to, to paraphrase 1 John 4.4, 4, he who is with us is greater than the evil that is in this world. Do we believe that? Is it possible even in this time to have the courage to say that and to live into that? That's what I think we are going to learn and experience with Elijah. That that, that is possible. That, that That's not only possible, it's exactly what God wants to do. Because he's already told us by his word, that's what he wants to do. And that, that scenario is the entire thing that Elijah's life revolved around with all his running out into the desert and his hidey holes and coming back in and being sort of the gorilla prophet. Hey, by the way, thus saith the Lord, your toast, boom, and then running back to the jungle kind of stuff. All of that over and over again, that that's the kind of prophet Elijah was, which we see, if you'll turn with me again to your Bible in, in chapter 17 of the book of 1 Kings. We're just going to look at the first six verses here today, but I want you to see how the modus operandi, if you will, of, of Elijah and his nabooness, and maybe God could raise up prophets among us too. Verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, the Lord, that is all capital letters, notice, Yahweh, the Lord, as lo the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. He lives, and I'm standing before him right now. You see, Elijah suddenly comes on the, screen, on the scene. We, we haven't heard anything about Elijah before. All of a sudden, here's this guy, Elijah the Tishbite. It's sort of like that crazy uncle you had when, you, you know, in holidays, he'd hide in the closet and scare you when he came down the hallway. Did you have one of those? I didn't have one of those, but it sounds cool. I, I tried not to be that kind of grandpa. But, but, you know, seemingly out of nowhere, Elijah goes, hey. But what's interesting is what Elijah's name means. The first letters are L, which means God. L-E, my God. Yah. My God is Yah. Yah. I am the Lord, all capital letters. Yah, I am, is God. Every time he said his name, every time people said his name, they're saying, yeah, Yahweh's God. The Lord is, is God. Jesus picks up on that too, doesn't he? I mean, we're going to see this when we get to John, which we'll be going through soon. But like in chapter 8, for example, he says, before Abraham was, I am, I, Yah, which totally ticked off the religious leaders because they knew exactly what he was saying. I'm not just representing him. I am him. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I mean, even today we find there's a remnant of people who believe this in the world, like those old codgers U2, and they wrote that song, that cool song, Yahweh, remember? They, all of those, those things are, are true. And, and that's what Elijah's doing here is he's starting off, the first words out of his mouth, as the Lord, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. He is real. First words out of his mouth, I just want you to know, I live for that God because he's real. In other words, what we learn first from Elijah is to live like your God really is. He really exists and he's really here and he's really with you. That's the difference of the New Testament, that God is with us. We can say it that way and, and, and Say that God has spoken, because he has spoken through his word to us. Live into, like God really is with you. What this is saying is, is there is a way through the moral wilderness. There, God has shown us and he's given us a way through the moral 
wilderness. And there is a way to live like God really is in our time, in this place, and to make those daily choices and to, to ask God to open the eyes of your heart to see that he really is real and that he is with you. And when that process starts to happen, wow, no matter what culture you live in, no matter what the news is telling you, you start to see it. It's sort of like when your eyes were open when you first found Christ. It's like, I never thought this was real. And And all of a sudden you do. That can happen for every single one of us, even in the midst of this this culture when we're trying to understand, what does God have me here for? What's, What's really going on? Or in the struggles that we have internally. And that's kind of where, where uh, Elijah goes next. Look at the second half of verse 1. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall certainly be neither dew nor rain during these years except by my word. Now, you know, it, that's not a very well good way to introduce yourself to the king. Oh, by the way, you're toast. You're in trouble. There's not going to be any rain. There's going to be a drought because God says so and he told me about it. You see, that must not have been an easy thing to say because the thing about cultural truth versus God's truth, I mean, in normal times or in, in, in times before these times, those, those two kind of overlapped more and more because it's impossible for people, for a culture, to co- totally untether themselves from God's truth. It's just not possible. It's impossible to untether themselves. But in our world, there are people in their forces that are trying to force those two apart so that they're becoming more and more distinct. And what what, what this is teaching us is, is in what, what Elijah's courage is saying is, you know, you're far better off repeating the capital T truth that God has told you and not the culture's truth. Stick with God's truth over the culture's truth uh, or, or the, the truth that you've been told is really true. You know, you can always tell that people are trying to change the world because they redefine words. Why is that? Because words are the only way we can communicate truth. It's the only way that kind of inhabits truth that, that we human beings can grasp it, right? So they try to redefine words and change words in order to shift the culture, in order to shift us away from God in this case. But what Elijah does is repeat the truth that God has told him, even though he doesn't fully understand about this, this uh, famine probably. I need to just tell you that this is what's happening because that's what God told me to tell you. I'm going back to my hiding hole. That kind of thing. You know, you see this happening in our world today. I mean, we don't, we don't worship golden calves. We don't worship idols. We'll get into this as we get into idolatry a little more in the coming stories. But we do have our own form. And sometimes it's more dangerous because it's sort of in, in, uh, infective, invasive. It's, it's, it's more subtle than it was before, or at least it is to us, because we, we live in it. We don't see it, this idolatry. It's sort of like uh, what Pope Francis said, an interesting thing. I don't usually quote Pope Francis, but he said a really wise thing the other day, a little while ago. He said, the most dangerous idol is our own selves when we want to occupy the place of God. The autonomous self. You see, let me give you a case in point of something that just kind of surprised me. I, I knew when I heard it, I had to say something about it. I'm not, I'm not trying to call out anybody at this moment or explain anything or this thing. But, but uh, what hap- this, this happened on uh, January 3rd when Congress in Washington, D.C. met again. The House met again. You probably maybe even heard of this. But the, when, when Congress meets, as a, at the beginning of each session, they have this prayer. And I'm putting it in scare quotes because I'm not sure this one was actually a prayer. At least not one that we would call a prayer. It was a prayer, but... It wasn't to God, the God we know anyway, because here's the thing. They asked a guy to do it who was another congressman who's also a clergyman. What kind? I have no idea. 
not the kind that I hang out with, but that's okay. But this clergyman did this prayer to start the, this new session of Congress. And at the end, he said, and we are praying to you, uh, the God of all mono-gods. And he lists off Allah, and then he calls instead of, you know, uh, Yahweh or Christ or anything, he says, the Christian God. And he, he, he said through several in there, which, again, that, who are you praying to, pal? But then in the end, he said, he, he, this is where the rewriting of words to try and change and shift the culture, and it, it, it's really kind of dumb. Well, I'll just tell you. In the end, he said, and it is to you we pray, amen and a women. Does that seem odd? It should seem odd. I'm not making, making anybody fun of anybody here. I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence, but can we just be clear? The word amen has nothing to do with men. It's not talking about some Tom, Dick, or Harry. It's not. It's not even close. I mean, even in English, it doesn't mean that. Amen. What? Who, who you pray? I mean, it, it means truly, truly. Amen, amen. That's why Jesus said truly, truly. And that was amen, amen. It means may it be so. A funny, strange attempt to change the narrative, to change the story, to, ch to make it so things will shift in a different direction to change what truth means. And what Isaiah's, or Elijah's point, or life shows us is that if you simply stick and with and repeat God's truth, he will make sure that it all works out. It's not up to us to shift the culture and try to change. You just stick with God's word. And we've got a whole bunch of it right here. Which leads us to the third thing that Elijah did. Look at verse, beginning at verse 2. It says, then the word, after talking to Ahab, coming into the courtroom or wherever he was and giving the word of the Lord, then running out of the courtroom, then the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you will drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to provide food for you there. So they, they went and did everything according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat, which apparently this was before bird flu, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. So you ask the question, where did he go? Can I just pause here for a second and do one of my, another one of my famous commercials for something that's going on at Eastridge? Because I need your help, okay? And, and here's, here's the commercial. Could you please watch your, um, your uh, newsletter? I think it's coming out this week or it could be next week. I'm not sure. But there's going to be sort of a poll. There's going to be a survey of if, is anybody interested in going on our Israel study tour, which is scheduled for the last week of August, first few days of September. Israel is getting near herd immunity with the vaccines, they think. By March, they'll be out of it. Whether or not they're open or not, that, you know, all of that, it, it explain, it'll explain that on the, on the survey. Uh, but if you're interested in thinking about it, all things being equal and you can get the vaccine and, and everything's you know, opened up and so forth, and, and knowing that if it's not, that we still get our deposits back and all that. If, if, uh, if you're interested at all, I'm not saying you're signing up, but could you just let me know? We're going to open this up to the, church, the Conference of Churches and the Covenant uh, in this area uh, to, um, 
give us, uh, give them a chance too. But I just want to know our church, if, if there's any interest at all. And could you just say, yeah, I'm interested. That's all you're saying. You're not saying you're signing up or anything like that. But, but would you do that? Because, and the reason I put that in here is because we're, we're Elijah goes is on the east side of the Jordan River. If you've been there, you can see clearly where Gilead is. It's on the other side of the Jordan River and the hills, the mountains there, all from the Dead Sea up to almost to the uh, Sea of Galilee. That region is where somewhere in there, we don't know exactly where the Brook of Cherith is, but we know it's in there somewhere as he, he runs back to his desert as he does this sort of guerrilla warfare kind of thing. Now, why does he do this? Because God told him to do it. Is that his preference? I don't know. But God told him to do it. Probably wasn't his preference to go out without any word from the Lord into the desert and starve to death. But God said, don't worry. I will provide for you. God has his reasons alone but for doing those kinds of things. But when God tells you and I to speak up, when God tells you and I to do something, when God tells us you know, to, to, find, to go to our place and pray to him and talk to him in that quiet place, what, I'm, what, what we learn from Elijah is we ought to take the Lord seriously enough to rely on him to provide. Even if we don't know where, what, how he's going to provide the time that I've got to get this done and I've got to do that. No, I want you to go and spend time with me. I want you to go out and be in that place. You see, I think what Elijah probably felt is like the whole world was depending on him. And what this teaches us is that if you feel like the whole world is on your shoulders, if that's your job, then you need to retire. You need to resign. Because God's the only one that can hold that job. And go to the good kind of wilderness, if you will, to be with God and to be with him in his time. And You see, I think this is a vital word for those of us who are living in a time when, when Christians and follow, Christian followers especially, we need that sense of freedom that God's got this, that God will provide. Whether it be the kind of freedom that, that you feel the pressures of this world of what am I going to do and it's pushing you toward compromise or to believe in God less or to be belief-less, or trust-less, or whether to be on the other side of the thing, you're feeling like just this anger and this rage kind of rising up inside you as you see more and more things coming down the pike, and you just, you, you know, instead of feeling like you have to beat down and say something about every single thing that happens in the Twitter feed or the Facebook page or the, or the news or whatever it is that's coming your way, resign from it and say, God, what do you want me to do about this? How do you want me to think about it? How do you want me to process this? You see, I think we need that today. And because of that, I'm going to give you three sort of summary final thoughts. And they're going to be so simplistic. You're going to go, I don't know. You know it's a, they're going to be one of those simplistic ones. But I'm saying that at the beginning of this series, and as the beginnings we start to try and learn how to walk like this, like this Nabu, Elijah, that we consider these things seriously in terms of our daily life and think about what they might mean in our daily life. The first one is this, live in reality. That is, live in the reality that God hasn't gone anywhere. That if you are a Christian, that means Christ with us, Emmanuel, he hasn't gone anywhere. And that he will make his move. And that there is a remnant. That there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Especially if you've been stuck in your house and you've only been able to join us online and that sort of thing. Understand that we are there with you, that you are there here with us, that that is exactly the truth, that we, there are, you're not alone. Secondly, say whatever the Lord tells you. When, when the Lord puts something on your heart, when you're through your devotional reading or whatever else, or, don't be shy about speaking up. I mean, if you're a person like me, that when something comes in here and it's not always good, it's coming out here, I need to double check. Okay, is this the Lord or something I ate? I need to be careful about that. That makes sense. 
But that's not even on you. The Lord will tell you. I mean, what about that kind of knowing God where you can have that kind of conversation? Is it time to speak up? Yeah. Or no. And then finally, do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever it is, whatever he's leading you to, check it out. If you need more confirmation, just, you know, move in that direction. God, I need some confirmation that this is how I'm supposed to move in that direction. Ask some wise people that you respect. You see, what we're really talking about here is just like Elijah goes to the desert. Go out to the desert and have some prayer time. A couple of quotes here real quick about prayer. Uh, I love what, uh, what uh, Nicky Gumbel, who uh, created the Alpha program, he's one of the creators of the Alpha program, uh, he wrote the devotional I read, uh, the Bible in one year. This week he had this statement about prayer that I just love. Prayer is, a spiritual, is spiritual nutrition. Just as the body needs physical food, so the soul needs spiritual food. Prayer changes us. But it doesn't only change us, it changes us to get ready for God to change the world. I love what Charles Spurgeon says too. He says, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Prayer, just like we said last week at the end of James, has the power to change circumstances and people and us and even the course of history. We are living at the optimum moment and the best time to be alive, I think, to see God make that kind of move, as scary as sometimes it can be. So let's just do that right now. Let's lift this up to prayer. And if you need to talk to him in your quiet moment, you just do it as I'm praying. But let's start that whole process, that whole act of going out to the quiet place and knowing that he is God. Our loving Lord Jesus, thank you for Elijah's life. Thank you for your confirmation of it, that it's something we need to know if we're really going to know you. That it's someone we need to learn about. Someone who is just like us. And in a crazy world, just like us, because he was a human being. Granted, we're not all prophets, but what you seem to be saying is we don't all have to be. So Lord, I just pray this week that you would help us all to live into the reality of what we believe about you, that you are really real. You're true. Did you help us know what to say and say what to say, how to say it when to share be extremists of your love, if you will, and your grace, and then to do what you told us to do. Get up and move and go and do what you told us to do. And we do ask that you would tell us that you'd lead us in that. And Lord, may we be able to see in these days stories that we can tell our grandchildren and great-grandchildren that people will hear about what you did through your people, yeah, through the remnant, but what you did that is unarguably supernaturally divine. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being here, and thank you for this church family. It's in your name we pray. Amen.